Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this special time of year, and we thank you for the chance to dive into the scriptures together. We pray that you would focus our attention on you, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive whatever it is that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so yes, we are continuing our Advent series, When the Word Became Flesh. Uh, Each week we're considering a different aspect of when the Word became flesh, when God became incarnate. Last week we looked at Jesus' genealogy, and this week we are looking at Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. When the Word became flesh, he had an adoptive father. He did not have a biological father. Um, That is the aspect of the Word made flesh that I think we're going to look at next week, the virgin birth. Uh, He did not have a biological father, but he did have an adoptive father. Uh, Joseph was legally Jesus' father. And we have every reason to think that most of the people that knew Joseph, Mary, and Jesus would have just assumed that Joseph was the biological father of Jesus. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, there's a time where Jesus starts teaching that he is the bread who came out of heaven or came down from heaven. And some of the people react by saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven. So, if the people had been aware of the miraculous circumstances by which Jesus came into the world, then they probably wouldn't be saying that, right? But they all assumed, hey, we know this family. We know Joseph and Mary. Jesus grew up with them. He didn't come down out of heaven, right? He came from Joseph and Mary. That was their assumption. As far as they were concerned, Joseph, the adoptive father, was Jesus' biological father. Now, in my experience, Mary tends to get a lot more attention than Joseph, and I'm okay with that. I think that's fine. That makes sense. But I think Joseph deserves some of our attention, too. So that is what we're going to do this morning. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. All right, so let's go back to the beginning there. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. What does that mean? The closest word that we have for that today is engaged. Uh, but betrothal in those days was a little different than engagement today. It was um, much more of a legal arrangement. Betrothals were contractual agreements between the wife of, or the family of the future wife and the family of the future husband. And if the future husband or future wife was unfaithful, then that was not just a betrayal of trust, it was a violation of law. It's important for us to recognize. Money was also involved. I know engage in, with engagements these days, money is usually involved, right? There's a ring. Um, but money was very much involved with a betrothal because the family of the future husband would pay a dowry to the family of the future wife. And that was given in advance. So Mary and Joseph were pledged to each other by word, by law, and by money. By word, by law, and by money. And then Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. And he knows that it can't be his. Because they have been doing things the way that you're supposed to do it. And uh, yet, Mary's pregnant. Now let's imagine for a moment what that must have been like for Joseph. I'm sure he was hurt, disappointed, angry. I imagine that Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24 came into his mind. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. By the standards of the Mosaic law, Mary deserved death. Or at least that's how it appeared. Now we should recognize the death penalty wasn't necessarily enforced in these cases during this time in Jewish history. So it's probably unlikely that Mary would have been killed if Joseph took her to court. But Joseph did know that if he took her to court for violating the betrothal, she would face terrible shame and public disgrace. Even if she escaped a literal stoning, she would still have to face a metaphorical stoning. The rejection of her community, the execution of her honor, the ruining of 
the opportunity for a future marriage. Joseph could have pushed for Mary's disgrace. And he would have been in his rights to do so. He could have pointed to the Mosaic law in his defense. And being angry at Mary would not have been the only reason to take her to court, as I just described, right? He also would have wanted to clear his own name, right? Because if he was the father, that would have brought shame upon him for violating the law. And then, of course, there would be a financial motive for taking Mary to court. Because if the judge found Mary guilty, then he would get, his family would get the dowry money back. And that would help enable him to marry someone in the future. So Joseph had his own pain, his own shame, and his finances to consider. His own pain, his own shame, and his finances. And yet, in spite of all that, he thinks it through and he decides not to take Mary to court because he does not want to submit her to public disgrace. Instead, we're told, he plans to send her away secretly or quietly. Now, I'm sure that Joseph wasn't perfect, but he is called a righteous man. And this, Matthew says, is why he handles this situation the way he does. He does not want to disgrace her and plans to send her away secretly because he is a righteous man. Isn't that interesting? I bet most of us can imagine a different version of this verse that would say something like, Joseph, since he was a righteous man, was determined to uphold the punishment for adulterers as specified in the Mosaic Law. Couldn't we all imagine a version of this verse that said that? That would align more with many people's understanding of righteousness. But Matthew and Joseph have a different understanding of righteousness. That's a word that we hear a lot in the Bible, righteous. What does it mean for a person to be righteous? Well, to put it as simply as possible, to be righteous is to live rightly, in a right way. Someone who lives righteously lives as God would want them to live. Now, we might assume that for someone living in Joseph's time, living as God would want them would mean insisting on the punishments of the law. But Joseph doesn't do that. Instead, because he is a righteous man, he aims to divorce Mary as quietly as possible. He tries to shield her from public disgrace, to cover over her sin, even though he believes that she has betrayed him. Even though shielding her from public disgrace will open him up to public disgrace. Even though it will probably hurt him financially, he tries to do things quietly. He tries to make it possible for Mary to have a second chance. And this, Matthew says, is righteous. Because living rightly doesn't just mean insisting on the letter of the law. 
living rightly also involves showing mercy. Sometimes living rightly means saying, even though I am demand punishment, I am going to choose to forgive. Sometimes that's what righteousness does. Now, you might say, well, but Mary wasn't guilty. It would have been wrong to punish her. And that's true. But Joseph didn't know that. He didn't know until the angel told him. And yet, it was before the angel told him that he decided to try and shield her from public disgrace. And that, Matthew says, is the sort of thing that a righteous person does. A righteous person is not concerned only with the letter of the law, but with the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law, Jesus teaches us, is love your neighbor as yourself. The spirit of the law points us to mercy and forgiveness, not only to consequence and punishment. The law, here's one way of thinking about it. The law teaches us that Sin creates a cost that must be paid. The law teaches us that sin creates a cost that must be paid. But that doesn't mean that the one who is wronged can't choose to pay the cost through forgiveness. That is what forgiveness is. Right? Forgiveness is when we bear the cost of someone's sin against us within ourselves. We take it and we absorb it. And that can be very painful. That can be our own cross to bear. Right? There is a cost, even when forgiveness happens. And it is paid, even when forgiveness happens. But the one who forgives is the one who bears it. And sometimes that's the righteous thing to do. I think that Joseph's understanding of righteousness makes him a very fitting adoptive father for Jesus. I can't help but wonder if maybe God chose him for this role specifically because of his merciful understanding of righteousness. Because that merciful understanding of righteousness is something that Jesus practiced and proclaimed throughout his entire ministry. You guys have heard the things that Jesus said, I'm sure. Things like, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He would teach us to pray, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he would command, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And he would do miraculous healings, not only to the, quote, good people, but also to outsiders, to people who were sometimes considered cursed by God, a Gentile soldier, a leper, a Canaanite woman, the demon-possessed. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus quotes a line from the prophet Hosea, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6. 6. 
And Jesus said this to remind people that God's real desire for human beings, his ultimate aim for us, is not that we would do things like perform animal sacrifices and various religious rituals and that sort of thing, but that we would become people of mercy. Now, don't get me wrong. Sacrifices, religious rituals, they have a role in God's plan. They have a function. They have a purpose. But their purpose ultimately is to help turn us into people of mercy. This is what God really desires. He wants us to be the kind of people who have compassion, not only for our close friends, right, but concern for also the outsiders, right? The people that we might regard as our enemies. The poor, the lost, even the morally guilty. The first time that Jesus quotes that line is in Matthew chapter 9. You might want to go and look at the whole story on your own sometime. And he says it shortly after he has called Matthew, the tax collector, to come and follow him. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples. And he calls Matthew as he is sitting in the tax collector's booth and says, come and follow me. And it's really significant that a rabbi does that because tax collectors were considered to be the worst. They were considered to be traitors because what tax collectors did was they collected taxes for Rome, the Roman Empire, and then received a cut of that. And Israel thought that Rome's authority over them was illegitimate, right? So what Jewish tax collectors were doing was they were basically working with the enemy and then profiting off of their own people. So tax collectors in those days were thought of not so much the way we would think of IRS agents, but more the way we would think of drug dealers. Bad people. And yet, Jesus looks at Matthew as he is sitting in the tax collector's booth and says, you, I choose you, come and follow me. As an aside, that should be a sign to all of us that Jesus does not wait for us to have our act together before calling us to follow him. You know, often I hear people say things like, well, one day I'll follow Jesus, you know, but I'm not ready yet. I gotta, I gotta take care of some things first. It's like, well, if Matthew didn't have to stop being a tax collector before Jesus chose him and said, follow me, you don't have an excuse either. <laughs> if Jesus' invitation is coming to you, you can say yes to that today. Yeah, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind, just like Matthew had to leave that tax collector's booth behind. But whatever mess you're in isn't going to keep Jesus from inviting you now. So Matthew gets called to follow Jesus. He says yes. And then the first thing that he does is he holds a party at his house. Of course, Matthew doesn't have any friends except for other tax collectors because nobody wants anything to do with him. He's a tax collector. 
So he invites a whole bunch of tax collectors to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And the religious leaders are disturbed by this. And they say, how can you eat with sinners like this? How can you do that? And then Jesus reminded them of God's words in Hosea. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means, this line from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, learn the priority that God gives to mercy, even for these people. And then the second time that Jesus quotes this line is just a little while later in chapter 12. And it is yet another confrontation with the religious leaders. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on the Sabbath, and they're hungry. So what they do is they reach out, and they grab some of the heads of grain that are growing, and they eat them. Doesn't seem like a problem, right? Well, the problem is, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And the rabbis had decided that picking grain is work. And so the Pharisees confront them. They say, how do you and your disciples dishonor the Sabbath like this? How can you do that? And Jesus' answer is very interesting. He responds by pointing them to several other times in the Old Testament where there are exceptions to the law. He gives an example of when King David and uh, some of his um, fellow travelers uh, ended up eating the consecrated bread in the tabernacle. And that was unlawful to do, but it was an unusual situation. They needed something to eat, and that was what was available. So he reminds them of that. He also reminds them of the fact that every Sabbath— the priests in the temple are working, and that exception is allowed. Right? So he reminds them of these exceptions, and then he says, you would get it if only you knew what these words mean. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If only they understood what Jesus' adoptive father Joseph knew, that real righteousness is about having a heart of compassion. If only they understood that, then they wouldn't be coming down so hard on Jesus and his disciples for just having a little snack while they were taking a walk. Another great example of Jesus' merciful righteousness is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Um, we looked at this back in, in May, and um, some of you may have been here for that. Some of you probably weren't. Uh, either way, I think it's worth returning to. But John records this fascinating incident where Jesus, just like Joseph, has to decide what to do with a woman who's been caught in adultery. Only... In this case, the woman truly is guilty, not like Jesus' mother. She is guilty of adultery. 
So the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus and they say, we caught her in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Probably thinking of that passage from Deuteronomy that I mentioned earlier, right? And so they say, okay, in the law, we were commanded to stone such women. What do you say? Jesus is put on the spot. And interestingly, we're told that Jesus doesn't respond right away. Instead, what he does is he bends down and he starts writing in the dust with his finger. Interesting choice. What was he writing? Nobody knows. It's not recorded, so we don't know. So what do we do with that? What are we supposed to learn from that? Well, let me suggest an interpretation for you. I think if the point was what Jesus was writing, then we would be told what he had been writing. I think what we're supposed to pay attention to is the fact that he's writing and the way that he's writing. We're told that he writes in the dust with his finger. And there is only one other place that I am aware of in the entire Bible where somebody writes with their finger. Anyone know? Yes. God writes the law with his finger. The finger of God writes on the tablets that Moses brings down from Mount Sinai. Isn't that interesting? So here we have a situation where Jesus is being confronted about the law, which comes from God, written by the finger of God, and then Jesus starts writing in the dust with his finger. Maybe Jesus is writing with his finger to show us that he is the divine lawgiver. And so how he handles this situation should be very instructive for all of us. And how does he handle it? Well, you probably know the story. He says to the crowd, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, if you think that you can stand before God blameless and without fault, then by all means, start the execution. But if there's a part of you that knows that you need the mercy of God, then maybe you should restrain yourself. With the judgment that you show others, you will be judged. So if you want to be given mercy, give mercy. And we're told that with those words, the crowd disperses. It says the older people leave first, which I think is an interesting detail. Probably because the older people have lived long enough to know I'm guilty of some stuff. And they're willing to acknowledge that. So the older people leave first, and then everybody leaves. And then Jesus is left alone with the woman. And what's very interesting about that, right, is that Jesus actually is blameless. He is the divine lawgiver. He is the one who has the right to throw the first stone, based on what he just said. 
He says, women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, sin, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. Keep at it. He says, leave your life of sin. But he also says, I don't condemn you. He forgives her. Even though, according to his own definition, he is within his rights to condemn her. As far as Jesus is concerned, righteousness means more than just the letter of the law. Righteousness means showing mercy. Even in situations where we are blameless, righteousness looks like showing mercy to the one who isn't. Because Jesus was blameless, and yet he showed mercy to us. Righteousness looks like giving second chances rather than throwing stones. And Joseph knew that too. And again, I strongly suspect that part of the reason God chose Joseph for this special task of caring for the Word made flesh is because he knew this. God gave Joseph the special role of raising, protecting, and providing for God incarnate. So, this Christmas season... I want to encourage us to let Jesus and Joseph, their perspective on righteousness, inspire us. Let's let their perspective on righteousness inspire us. This is a great time of year to show mercy to someone, even if they don't deserve it. You know, maybe there's somebody that you've been bearing a grudge against for a while, Someone who needs a second chance. Maybe, just like Joseph, you have the power to humiliate them or to forgive them. Maybe, like Jesus, you have the power to throw the first stone or to put it down. So maybe right now the Holy Spirit is bringing someone or a situation to mind. Um, now, I, I do feel like I should say, okay, if the person in question is a danger to you or to others, they may need to face the consequences of their actions. Okay, I'm not trying to be glib about this. Um, that may be true. But... Before you assume that righteousness automatically means forcing that person to be punished, consider Joseph and Jesus' understanding of righteousness. True righteousness doesn't just lead to righteous anger. Yes, it does lead to righteous anger, but it also leads to righteous mercy. And showing mercy to the person that came to your mind may have far greater power to heal them and heal you than making them 
face humiliation and punishment. And showing that mercy may be the greatest Christmas gift that you could give them and yourself. Lord, I pray uh, that right now uh, your spirit would be at work, um, calling to our attention any people or circumstances that you want us to think of. Lord, um, soften our hearts with your mercy. Help us to be the kind of people who are not quick to throw stones, the kind of people that recognize that true righteousness includes mercy, the kind of people who recognize that what you really desire from us is mercy. Help us to learn that. Help us to learn what, what the Pharisees weren't able to learn in those stories or, or hadn't learned yet. And Lord, I, I pray that you might move, uh, especially in, in families, in some healing and restorative ways uh, this Christmas season. And Lord, if, if we can help to be agents of that, help us to recognize that and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.